Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Three Lions AWM podcast, where we examine the topics and trends impacting the three lions of Asia-Pacific's asset and wealth management industry. I am Conor McMahon, and today we will be discussing whether or not Hong Kong can remain a global financial centre given recent developments within and without the territory, and if not, who are the leading contenders across Asia-Pacific to replace it? We will examine the components that make a financial centre, look at the rise of Hong Kong as a leader in global finance, delve into what has changed and how this could dethrone Hong Kong, and look at some of the potential centres that could replace it. Let's dive in. Firstly, let's take a look at some of the components and factors which contribute to a location becoming a leading financial centre. These can be tangible and measurable, or more abstract and vague. As we are fairly lazy at Three Lions AWM advisory, rather than meticulously examine the myriad of factors which would comprise indices ranking financial centers across the world and develop our own index, we will rely on an existing one. This is found in the form of the Global Financial Centers Index, a biannual publication produced by Z Yen Partners and the China Development Institute the 28th edition of which was published in September 2020. This index assesses and ranks financial centres the world over across 138 instrumental factors broken into five categories, human capital, business environment, financial sector development, infrastructure, and reputational in general. These factors are supplemented by an online continuous survey which has run since 2007 and garnered nearly 55,000 responses, and the latest iteration of the index incorporated just over 8,500 responses into its rankings. These two components combine to give a financial centre a score, with the higher the score, the better the ranking of the centre. Each of the five categories just mentioned has several subcategories which comprise them. Business environment encompasses political stability and rule of law, institutional and regulatory environment, macroeconomic environment, and tax and cost competitiveness. Human capital incorporates the availability of skilled personnel, a flexible labor market, education and development, and quality of life. Financial sector development comprises depth and breadth of industry clusters, availability of capital, market liquidity, and economic output. Infrastructure contains built infrastructure, Information and Communications Technology, or ICT, infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and sustainable development. Finally, reputational and general consists of city brand and appeal, level of innovation, attractiveness and cultural diversity, and comparative positioning with other centers. Thus, we can get a glimpse of the myriad factors and considerations which go into determining what makes a financial center. For a full methodology of the Global Financial Centers Index, please refer to the link in the description. Having established the components of what can help build a global financial center, let us now examine Hong Kong's rise from Lord Palmerston's 1841 description of it as a, quote, barren rock with hardly a house upon it, end quote. Founded, in the words of journalist and reputed spy Richard Hughes, quote, on contraband and conquest, end quote, to one of the world's leading financial centres. Hong Kong's banking, and arguably financial history, dates back to 1845, with the establishment of the Oriental Banking Corporation, the first note-issuing institute in Hong Kong. Whilst this institution failed to go the distance into the present day, unlike its competitors, who survive in the form of Standard Chartered and HSBC, among others, from such humble beginnings grew a financial powerhouse. Hong Kong's role began to grow further as a refuge for Chinese capital. First, from the tumultuous period from 1911 to 1921, as the Kuomintang sought to unify China in the post-dynastic world. Then again, as the Sinopan War raged, and finally, during the post-World War II Chinese Civil War. Jia An notes in their 2010 thesis, the development of Hong Kong as an international financial center and the prospect of constructing Shanghai as the next one based on a comparative functional study, that in the 1960s, as international banks sought an Asian city to host the Asian dollar market, 
Japan was focused internally as they entered the second phase of their post-World War II reconstruction and recovery, whilst Hong Kong and Singapore were able to seize upon the opportunity presented. This opportunity was, arguably, not fully realised until 1978, when Hong Kong revoked its 15% withholding tax on interest income derived from foreign currency deposits, and its moratorium on bank licensing was lifted. The revocation of these two factors, combined with the beginning of China's internal reform and opening up program in 1979, following Deng Xiaoping's southern progress, truly began Hong Kong's ascent into the financial stratosphere. The rise was further assisted by its location, enabling it to fill the void in time zones between London and New York for the trading of gold and foreign exchange. Whilst there have been disruptions, namely the uncertainty surrounding the 1997 handover to China, the Asian financial crisis, the Great Recession, and now the Great Lockdown, Hong Kong has effectively navigated the challenges faced and stood atop the financial world. This can be evidenced with the following. In terms of stock market capitalization, the World Federation of Exchanges data shows as of November 2020, Hong Kong ranked third in Asia-Pacific and accounted for over 17% across the region. Additionally, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority reports that Hong Kong was ranked number one in terms of IPO fundraising in six out of the last 10 years. In 2020, Hong Kong IPOs raised over 50 billion US dollars across 140 IPOs, according to KPMG and Deloitte. In the asset and wealth management space, the latest survey from the Securities and Futures Commission shows that as of year end 2019, Hong Kong boasted 3.69 trillion US dollars in AUM, a 20% increase from 2018 survey. The HKMA notes that Hong Kong was rated Asia's number one international fund hub 16 times since 2000. Statistics Hong Kong, in their latest biennial release on the financial services sector, note that in 2018, the financial services sector accounted for nearly 20% of Hong Kong's GDP and employed over 260,000 people. The HKMA notes as of 2019 year-end, Hong Kong boasted banking assets of over 3 trillion US dollars and that Hong Kong hosted 200 authorized banking institutions, including 70 of the world's largest 100. Finally, the HKMA notes that Hong Kong ranks fourth across Asia-Pacific in terms of local currency bond issuance. Beyond these points, Hong Kong ranked third in the latest Ease of Doing Business survey, dated May 2019. Additionally, Hong Kong offers a common law system and has a strong legal industry, with over 12,000 barristers and solicitors across over 1,000 firms as of June 2020, and it has a fairly permissive immigration policy, enabling foreign talent to gain work permits in the city. So, from this position of strength, what could cause Hong Kong to lose its luster and be dethroned as THE financial centre of APAC? In the latest version of the Global Financial Centres Index, Hong Kong placed fifth overall, with a score of 743. In the Asia-Pacific region, it ranked third, four points behind Tokyo and five points behind Shanghai. Whilst this is certainly a respectable ranking, it is a dramatic decrease from previous editions of the index, where Hong Kong ranked third globally, behind New York and London, and first in Asia-Pacific since September 2017. Prior to September 2017, Hong Kong jockeyed with Singapore for the third place ranking, and Hong Kong took this position 16 out of 21 times. The decrease in Hong Kong's position was most pronounced in 2019, where it recorded 783 points in the March iteration of the index, before sliding to 771 points for the September edition, and then bottoming out with 737 points in the March 2020 publication. So, what was the cause of this dramatic decrease? Before delving into the specifics, it should be noted that the March 2020 Global Financial Centers Index showed all of the top five APAC financial centers losing ground in their aggregate score, as did several centers in Western Europe and North America. So the decrease in score afflicted developed financial centers the world over, just not quite to the extent that Hong Kong was impacted. Of the five categories, of instrumental factors mentioned earlier, human capital, business environment, financial sector development, 
infrastructure, and reputational and general, as a reminder, Hong Kong was in the top three, or first, across all five categories as recently as 2019, though it did drop out of the top three ranking for business environment in March 2019's edition. In the two 2020 reports, Hong Kong lost substantial ground in the financial sector development, infrastructure, and reputational and general categories, falling to 5th, 5th, and 4th, respectively. As a reminder, each of these categories has several subcategories which comprise them, so we can delve deeper into where Hong Kong lost ground and examine possible reasons why. Financial sector development comprises depth and breadth of industry clusters, availability of capital, market liquidity, and economic output. Infrastructure contains built infrastructure, ICT infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and sustainable development. Finally, reputational and general consists of city brand and appeal, level of innovation, attractiveness and cultural diversity, and comparative positioning with other centers. Based off these subcategories, I would postulate that Hong Kong lost the most ground in economic output, as Hong Kong entered its first recession since 2009 in the second half of 2019, and the global pandemic has exacerbated this. Sustainable development, which could explain the raft of recent initiatives to develop Hong Kong as a green and sustainable financial hub, and city brand and appeal, as the impact of civil unrest, Hong Kong's passing of the China security law, and increased scrutiny and restrictions placed on it by the USA detract from Hong Kong's luster. Combined, the three categories comprise 80 subcategories, and we will not be delving into each of them. Rather, we will look at selected subcategories which we think would be relevant to the areas we believe Hong Kong lost ground in, which we highlighted earlier. Firstly, exploring Hong Kong as a green and sustainable finance hub and whether it has slipped in regional rankings over the time period in question. As it happens, Z Yen also produces a biannual index on green finance called the Global Green Finance Index. This follows a similar methodology to the Global Financial Centers Index, incorporating a survey and 135 instrumental factors in providing two rankings, depth and quality, for financial centers with regards to their green finance offerings. Depth, in this sense, is defined as the level of specialization a center has with regards to green finance and sustainability, whereas quality refers to the diversity of factors which comprise the green and sustainable business environment within the financial center. Though its publication history is a lot shorter than its sibling publication, the Global Green Finance Index has been in operation over the period that encompasses Hong Kong's decline, and it shows that from the March 2019 to September 2020 iterations, Hong Kong fell from 31st and 37th place to 41st and 40th in depth and quality respectively in terms of global rankings. Like the Global Financial Centers Index, a score is provided as well as a ranking and Hong Kong did increase its score over the period, so it lost ground as other centers improved their scores by a larger amount than Hong Kong was able to. Looking at the performance of other Asia-Pacific financial centers, namely Shanghai, Shenzhen, Singapore, and Tokyo, Shanghai and Shenzhen also saw their rankings decline whilst the overall scores increased. Tokyo went from being placed 34th and 28th in March 2019 for depth and quality respectively to 19th and 17th in September 2020. Singapore saw its quality ranking increase from 23rd to 21st over the same period, though its depth ranking fell from 23rd to 30th. Whilst that is a far from comprehensive assessment, the Global Green Finance Index demonstrates that Hong Kong did suffer a decline in its green and sustainability finance rankings, which impacted its Global Financial Centers Index ranking. Hong Kong appears to be taking steps to remedy this decline, and has recently announced a raft of measures to develop Hong Kong as a green and sustainable financial center, and we will examine these developments in a future episode. Turning to economic performance, we have the International Institute for International Management's IMD World Competitiveness Rankings, which assesses the economic competitiveness of countries and jurisdictions across a wide range of factors. The ranking is presented as an overall ranking and is also broken down across economic performance, government efficiency, business efficiency, and infrastructure. 
Over the period 2016 to 2020, Hong Kong was ranked first, first, second, second, and fifth respectively in aggregate rankings. Of note, there was a significant decrease in economic performance rankings, going from 5th in 2016 to 28th in 2020. Across the other factors, Hong Kong performed well, ranking first in government efficiency across all five years, first and second in business efficiency over the period, and improved its infrastructure ranking from 21st in 2016 to 14th in 2020. The tangible effects of the decrease in economic performance can be seen in Hong Kong's GDP statistics. As of year-end 2020, Hong Kong had endured six consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, pushing it well into recession territory, with 2Q 2020 showing a substantial 9.1% year-on-year decline. Accordingly, 2020 recorded an overall 6.1% contraction to GDP in Hong Kong, the first time since at least 1962 that back-to-back annual contractions in GDP have been recorded, and 2020 exceeded the 5.1% decline witnessed in 1998, following the handover to China and the Asian financial crisis. Finally, with regards to city brand and appeal, and the impact civil unrest has had on this ranking, Following the release of the 2020 IMD rankings, Nikkei Asia noted in an article dated June 16, 2020, that, quote, Hong Kong's decline appears mainly due to the street protests that escalated last year. Poor economic performance, along with growing political instability and weaker social cohesion, pushed the territory down the list, end quote. One of the main sources for measuring Hong Kong's attractiveness is the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Index. The 2019 edition of this index showed Hong Kong had gained position, rising to third from seventh in 2018. However, the data used to compile this was taken before the outbreak of protests and, following the civil unrest, World Economic Forum noted that independence and press freedom had declined in Hong Kong, with a footnote to the 2019 report stating, quote, they do not reflect any of their potential consequences, positive or negative, on the driver's of competitiveness, end quote. The 2020 report released was a special edition, focused on examining and ranking countries' performance as they recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. So the impact on Hong Kong's rankings remains to be seen from this publication. It will be interesting to see the impact on Hong Kong's ranking when the report reverts to its traditional format. Hong Kong has been dropped from the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, an annual report published for 27 years which examines and ranks the economic freedom of countries across 12 areas. Following developments in the special administrative regions of Hong Kong and Macau, the Heritage Foundation determined that these areas had lost sufficient autonomy to be considered directly ruled from Beijing. The foundation noted that, quote, no doubt Hong Kong and Macau enjoy economic policies that in many respects offer their citizens more economic freedom than is available to the average citizen in China. But developments in recent years have demonstrated unambiguously that these policies are ultimately controlled from Beijing, end quote, according to a Financial Times article dated 4 March 2021. For 25 years, Hong Kong had ranked first in the Foundation's Economic Freedom Index until it was relegated to second place by Singapore last year, and Hong Kong's government had long considered its place a source of pride. In response to the removal from the rankings, Hong Kong's government expressed, quote, deep disappointment and serious dismay, end quote, and that when arriving at their decision, the Heritage Foundation, quote, must have been clouded by their ideological inclination and political bias, end quote, according to a Bloomberg article dated 4 March 2021. Further real-world examples of Hong Kong's slide in rankings can be evidenced across several instances. In October 2019, it was widely reported that Goldman Sachs estimated between 3 to 4 billion US dollars had left Hong Kong for Singapore as a direct result of civil unrest. Though Singapore downplayed the outflows and the head of MAS stated Hong Kong remained a, quote, formidable financial centre, end quote, according to a Bloomberg article dated 16 July 2020. Whilst the amount of 3 to 4 billion US dollars is certainly large to me, and I would assume the vast majority of listeners, it pales in comparison to the 1.5 trillion US dollars that Hong Kong had on deposit then. 
Discussions I had with contacts in Hong Kong at the time indicated that, yes, money is moving out of Hong Kong, and Singapore was certainly a major recipient of these assets. However, the shift had been happening well before Hong Kong's extradition bill, the spark of the initial protests, was tabled, and the subsequent unrest erupted. Further, Hong Kong's wealthy often employ complex structures which cannot be transferred to other jurisdictions overnight. Time and effort is required to restructure these arrangements, and this is where the majority of inquiries and work was reported as occurring at the time. More recently, the Financial Times ran an article dated 21 December 2020 that showed, quote, Global financial groups are ramping up hiring in Singapore and shunning Hong Kong as concerns over Beijing's sweeping national security law in the Chinese territory spur the relocation of key assets, end quote. To arrive at this conclusion, FT examined LinkedIn data and found eight times as many jobs available in Singapore at financial institutions, UBS and JP Morgan, whilst others, like Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and Citibank, were advertising twice the number of jobs in the Lion City compared to the Fragrant Harbour. Quoting banking executives and recruitment firms, FT noted that there had been efforts undertaken to add more jobs to Singapore to, quote, spread the risk given the geopolitical situation, end quote. Recruiters noted that around one-fifth of their business in 2020 involved assisting financial groups move roles from Hong Kong to Singapore. A high-profile example of this occurred in July 2020, when Deutsche Bank AG's New Asia chief executive changed their base to Singapore from Hong Kong. Bloomberg reported that this was the first time in a decade that DB Asia's sole CEO was based outside of Hong Kong. Additionally, some high-profile firms have announced their intention to leave the market, with Vanguard and Elliott Management exiting. The decision of Elliott to leave was reportedly made in 2018, though it does echo the sentiment of Hong Kong's hedge fund industry, as reported in a Financial Times article dated 9 June 2020, in which a hedge fund advisor stated, quote, Hong Kong as we know it is dead. It will become just another city in China. The hedge fund industry will move on to Singapore and elsewhere, end quote. According to data provider Eureka Hedge, Hong Kong boasts over 420 hedge funds, managing over 90 billion US dollars as of April 2020, more than Singapore, Australia and Japan combined. Further recent developments, namely the move by the United Kingdom to expand access to the British National Overseas Passport, the explosion in applications for said passport, the freezing of bank accounts in Hong Kong, and Beijing's increasingly tight grip over the territory, threaten to unleash a further wave of capital flight. Bank of America estimates that circa 76 billion US dollars could leave Hong Kong through migration, drawn largely from property sales and pension withdrawals, with 36 billion US dollars occurring in 2021 alone, according to a Nikkei Asia article dated 31 January 2021. From September 2019, Hong Kongers have increasingly converted their savings to currencies other than Hong Kong dollars, increasing from 2.1 trillion Hong Kong dollars to 3 trillion at the end of November 2020, possibly in anticipation of sending it offshore. Additionally, Hong Kong's Mandatory Provident Fund noted that the total amount of withdrawals from individuals reached 5.1 billion Hong Kong dollars over the 12 months to June 2020, nearly 20% higher than the previous year, and the highest it has been since 2015, according to a Bloomberg article dated 25 January 2021. If Hong Kong loses its attraction to foreign firms and both local and expatriate staff, there is no guarantee that they could be replaced by mainland Chinese staff. This is largely due to an announcement in July 2020, where China stated its intent to tax PRC citizens on their global incomes. For Chinese bankers in Hong Kong, this would mean being taxed up to 45% on their salaries, compared to Hong Kong's top rate of 17%, according to Bloomberg. This increase in tax, coupled with higher cost of living expenses in Hong Kong, could detract from the attractiveness of working in the territory. Hong Kong is being buffeted by external factors as well. In July 2020, the administration of President Trump announced that Hong Kong's special status had been revoked by executive order. 
As a refresher, Hong Kong's special status came into effect in 1992 via the United States Hong Kong Policy Act in anticipation of the 1997 handover to China. Under the Act, the US treated Hong Kong differently to Communist China, given Hong Kong's basic law, which was meant to remain in place until 2047. The revocation of the Act was stated as being directly tied to Hong Kong's decreased autonomy and was followed by financial sanctions being applied on individuals in China and Hong Kong. Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's chief executive, reportedly now has, quote, piles of cash, end quote, at her home due to banking sanctions. Whilst sanctions are currently targeted, an escalation or widening of them could see banks scale back their operations or shut them down completely, which would effectively derail Hong Kong as an international financial centre. In a limited example of the impact sanctions and actions taken against Chinese companies could take, several American banks in Hong Kong are looking to delist 500 structured products which invest in sanctioned companies. Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing noted that the delistings were a, quote, direct result, end quote, of the US sanctions and noted that they did not believe the impact on the structured products market would be material, as the total structured product universe amounted to over 12,000 listed products. Additionally, State Street Global Advisors announced in January 2021 that it would no longer make investments in sanctioned stocks via its 14 billion US dollar Hong Kong tracker fund, and then reversed that decision two days later, drawing rebuke from the HKMA and criticism from other market participants and members of Hong Kong's Legislative Council. The unique nature of the tracker fund namely that it tracks the Hang Seng Index, would have led to numerous issues had the decision around investing in sanctioned Chinese companies not been reversed. Not least that the fund would not have been effectively tracking the Hang Seng, and investors would have seen significant tracking error. Finally, China has made great strides in opening up its financial services sector to foreign firms, and it has several cities which could challenge Hong Kong as APAC's leading financial centre. Within China, there are two locations which are leading contenders to potentially dethrone Hong Kong as Asia-Pacific's leading financial center, Shanghai and Shenzhen. As things stand at time of recording, given the current size and potential of China's financial sector, each will likely take a prominent role, and each could surpass Hong Kong in respective ways, if not in aggregate. Starting with Shenzhen, This former fishing village and industrial town given life by its status as a special economic zone is now China's version of Silicon Valley and boasts a thriving technology industry, startup scene and its own exchange, which focuses on technology companies. In the latest version of the Global Financial Centers Index, Shenzhen ranked 9th overall and 6th in Asia Pacific. This was the first time it had entered the top 10 and reflects its rapid rise up the rankings. Going back to March 2018's Global Financial Centers Index publication, Shenzhen ranked 18th globally and 7th in APAC. Shenzhen also boasts a strong alternatives fund ecosystem. It ranks 2nd in terms of the number of alternative fund managers, 2nd in terms of the number of alternative funds, and 3rd in terms of alternative fund AUM across China at time of recording. In addition, there are several traditional asset managers headquartered in the city. Shenzhen also boasts its own cross-border investment program, the Qualified Domestic Investment Enterprise Scheme, which enables qualified fund managers and financial institutions to establish an onshore investment vehicle to raise money within China for overseas investment in qualified securities. As of September 2020, China's regulators had granted over 107 billion US dollars in QDIE quota and 3.36 billion US dollars had been allocated across 18 institutions. Given China's restrictions on the movement of capital and currency into and outside of its borders, Shenzhen having a dedicated program improves its standing among domestic and foreign financial institutions alike, and the expansion of the program or introduction of new programs could advance Shenzhen as a global financial center. Shenzhen will also stand to benefit from the creation of the Greater Bay Area and the recently announced Wealth Management Connect, which will operate in this region. Whilst these initiatives will be covered in a later episode, the coupling of Shenzhen 
and the wider GBA as an economic powerhouse with the depth and access to global capital that Hong Kong provides has the potential to benefit both centres. Whether the bulk of benefits flow to Hong Kong, Shenzhen or another location remains to be seen. Turning our attention north, Shanghai stands as perhaps the most natural competition to Hong Kong as a global financial centre. It is arguable that, should this come to pass, Shanghai would be reclaiming its position and role from Hong Kong, which it lost following the closure of China to the world at the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Authorities in China have long signalled their intent of developing or redeveloping Shanghai into a global financial centre. Deng Xiaoping perhaps provided the genesis when he toured the city in 1991 and pointed out Shanghai's past role as an international financial centre with freely traded currencies, and that should China wish to acquire international status in the financial arena, it would need to rely on Shanghai. This position was translated into state policy the following year, at the 14th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. The central government further enhanced its public support for Shanghai in 2005, with the People's Bank of China establishing an additional headquarters in Shanghai. This was a significant move, which served to establish an interactive relationship for the development of Shanghai into an international financial centre. In 2006, the 11th five-year plan for the provision of Shanghai International Financial Centre was announced. This established the principles for Shanghai's development into a global financial centre, and highlighted the major tasks required to accomplish this. Also, in 2006, the Shanghai Finance University published the Blue Book of Developing Shanghai into an International Financial Centre, a publication authored by several experts and which would be released annually to proffer suggestions on the development of Shanghai into an International Financial Centre. In July 2008, then-Premier Wen Jiabao proposed accelerating the development of Shanghai as an International Financial Centre, with the announcement shortly being followed by China's State Council examining and endorsing in principle the options on accelerating Shanghai's developing its modern service and advanced manufacturing industries and its development into an international financial centre and an international shipping centre in an executive meeting held in March 2009. These options were officially promulgated in April 2009 and represented the first time China had explicitly defined the developing of Shanghai into an international financial centre and national strategy via a state council document. Shanghai then enacted its own regulations on its promotion as an international financial centre at the 13th Shanghai Municipal People's Congress in June 2009, with the regulations taking effect from 1 August 2009. These regulations reinforced the cohesive desire, from municipal to state level, of developing Shanghai into its desired role, and optimised the environment for this development at the legislative level. More recently, in January 2019, PBOC and seven other government departments published the Action Plan for the Construction of Shanghai International Financial Centre, 2018-2020. This action plan reiterated China's objective of having Shanghai as an influential player in global financial markets. So, having over two decades of direct and indirect support provided to it, how does Shanghai currently stand as an international financial centre? Based on the latest Global Financial Centres Index rankings, it is clearly doing well, having risen to third place globally and first in APAC. Its stock market is the largest in Asia-Pacific by market capitalization. Banking assets held there amount to 2.9 trillion US dollars. It boasts 125 microcredit companies with outstanding loans of 3.23 trillion US dollars. It ranks first in China in terms of alternative funds across the number of alternative fund managers, alternative funds, and alternative fund AUM. It has a substantial traditional asset management industry and boasts a range of securities and brokerage firms, trust companies, and other financial institutions. Additionally, it is the location for foreign financial firms establishing operations in China, a trend which has accelerated with the recent measures to open up China's financial services industry taking effect. Against these strengths is the glaring weakness shared with Shenzhen that no matter the depth and breadth of financial markets, products and services found, including those facilitating cross-border investment, 
Until China fully opens its capital and currency markets, Shanghai will be shackled as an international financial center. Despite this handicap, it is a testament to the raw and developed potential of Shanghai that it has progressed so far in the previous couple of decades, and that it stands poised to reclaim its role as the leading financial center of the Far East. Rounding out the three natural competitors to Hong Kong is Singapore, its long-standing rival of the last two centuries. Strategically positioned in the heart of Southeast Asia and the rapidly developing ASEAN economies, Singapore boasts many of the strengths that made Hong Kong the dominant financial centre it was or is, depending on your point of view. A common law system, low corporate and individual income taxes, free movement of capital and currency, a well-educated workforce, and an advantageous time zone, among others, all contribute to its current ranking of 6th globally and 4th in APAC, one rank and one point behind Hong Kong in the latest Global Financial Centre's index rankings. This is manifested in Singapore's strong banking, asset management, wealth management, and insurance industries. Singapore boasted 2.57 trillion US dollars in AUM across circa 900 fund managers as of 2019. This was diversified across alternative, traditional, and private banking investments. Additionally, as of November 2020, Singapore hosted 1.14 trillion US dollars in banking assets, along with over 200 local and foreign banks, primary dealers, finance companies, and financial holding companies. Specifically in the wealth management space, including private banking and family offices, Singapore certainly appears to be stealing a march on its northern peers. This is evidenced with Citibank establishing its largest wealth hub in the city-state, encompassing over 30,000 square feet in floor space over four floors, and with a capacity of 300 relationship managers and product specialists. This will form the epicenter of Citibank's desire to, quote, win in wealth, end quote, across APAC, a key aspect of Citi's strategy to double their AUM and triple the number of qualified clients by 2025. Singapore's importance in Citi's regional wealth management strategy was reinforced by incoming CEO Jane Fraser's statement that, quote, Singapore is our new wealth hub, end quote, and cited the trust and security of Singapore as a key consideration for their decision to base their new mega hub within its jurisdiction. JP Morgan has also signaled its intentions for Singapore as a wealth management centre, planning to double the number of private bankers serving Chinese clients from Singapore by 2022, according to Bloomberg in an article dated 30 November 2020. Whilst Citi is establishing their wealth hub to attract both high net worth individuals and those with circa $250,000 in investable assets, JP Morgan is likely to target Chinese wealth exclusively in the high net worth, ultra high net worth, and family office segments, a much more lucrative option given the rapid rate of wealth creation in China, which mints millionaires and billionaires on a weekly basis, as per the UBS Billionaires Report and Capgemini World Wealth Report. As China's wealthy increasingly appreciate the ability of Beijing to reach over the nominal border and pluck them away from Hong Kong's five-star hotels for extradition back to the mainland, it is likely they will seek other regional centres to park their wealth, and Singapore is likely to be a leading if not the leading candidate. This view is reinforced by an article from Reuters, dated 29 May 2020, which notes that over half of Hong Kong's estimated one trillion US dollars in private wealth is held by mainland individuals. Whilst many of these individuals have expressed public support for Hong Kong's security law, which in addition to permitting extradition to mainland China allows for the freezing and seizure of assets, Reuters reports that many wealth managers are fielding calls from their mainland Chinese clients about shifting their assets to other wealth hubs, including Singapore. In terms of developing Singapore as a global financial centre, MAS is developing several focus areas, including the formation of the Singapore Variable Capital Company, Green Finance, FinTech, and the regional application of FinTech across ASEAN, cross-border fund passporting, and industry training to provide a strong pipeline of talent to asset management, wealth management, and fintech, among other initiatives. The most prominent weakness in Singapore's development is, arguably, its capital markets. 
Singapore's stock exchange ranks far down the list of APAC bourses in terms of market capitalization, and the Financial Times reported that the number of companies on the SGX decreased from 776 in late 2013 to 715 in May 2020. If Singapore is able to become a credible location for companies to list, it would go a long way in overcoming Hong Kong as a global financial centre. Alternatively, it could work to build on areas of strength it already possesses and use these avenues to grow its standing. Regardless of what path or paths it chooses to pursue, Singapore is well established as a regional and global financial centre, and it looks set to continue to grow and develop in this regard. Finally, Tokyo threw its proverbial hat into the ring of contenders to permanently take Hong Kong's place as a global financial centre, with the ruling Liberal Democratic Party debating how Tokyo could become more attractive to international firms the day after Hong Kong adopted the national security law imposed upon it by Beijing. Prima facie, this ambition could be realised. Japan boasts strong, though somewhat internally focused capital markets. Numerous foreign financial firms currently operate across it, and Tokyo is a global city, and quite fun to be in. However, numerous challenges and barriers will need to be overcome for the objective to be reached. Perhaps most importantly, taxes are substantially higher in Tokyo compared to Hong Kong, and Japan recognises capital gains as income, unlike Hong Kong, which does not tax them at all. Fine News Asia notes in an article dated 22 January 2020 that any attempt to provide favourable tax breaks to financial firms and foreigners is likely to be rejected by voters. Regarding attracting foreign talent to its shores, Japan finds itself in somewhat of a drought, with only 13,000 individuals on a high-level professional visa living in Japan as of June 2019. Bloomberg, in an article dated 1 July 2020, quoted Satsuki Katayama, who heads an LDP panel of foreign labour, as noting that if Japan was an attractive destination for high-skilled foreign labour, they would already be migrating there. To overcome these challenges, Japan is considering a range of initiatives such as tax incentives, streamlined bureaucracy and paperwork, special economic zones, and others. Whether these initiatives would succeed in wholly or partially strengthening Tokyo as a global financial centre remains to be seen. As Investopedia notes in an article dated 23 November 2020, Japan has been here before. The commitment to structural reforms announced by Prime Minister Suga are the same reforms which were announced by his predecessor Shinzo Abe when he returned to power and brought his three arrows of Abenomics with him. Some reforms date back to the Koizumu administration, which ran from April 2001 to September 2006. If all the initiatives are implemented successfully, then it would be interesting to see how foreign financial firms respond to them and whether Tokyo is able to edge out Shanghai, Shenzhen or Singapore as the new financial centre of the Far East. For now, we would put Tokyo at the back of the pack of potential contenders we have covered today. It may also eventuate that no one centre replaces Hong Kong. Instead, pieces of the fragrant harbour's financial services sector may break off and be absorbed by other centres. The majority of the asset and wealth management industry could head to Singapore. IPOs to Shanghai, Shenzhen and other centres, digital assets move to Tokyo, and so forth. Of course, the leading contender to replace Hong Kong in its role as a global financial centre is a reinvigorated and reinvented Hong Kong. Before we get into our final thoughts and wrap up the podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could like, comment, and share with others you think would enjoy it. If you didn't enjoy it, thank you for sticking around this long, and do let us know what topics you would like discussed in future. Let us know your thoughts in the comments, or reach out to us via the channels shown in the podcast description. If you really like the episode, and want to support us financially, only if you have the means, do check out our Patreon link in the description as well. Whereas in previous eras, Hong Kong served as the gateway to China, recent reforms and measures have enabled foreign financial institutions to establish 100% or majority-controlled operations across a range of sectors in China's financial industry. This means that firms operating in Hong Kong simply to use it as a base to access the market of the Middle Kingdom now have substantial access directly, 
Vanguard is perhaps the best example of a firm seizing this opportunity, having scaled back operations in Singapore, Japan and Hong Kong to focus on China. Nowadays, Hong Kong's value is arguably for Chinese firms and in supporting their efforts to raise foreign capital outside the more restrictive jurisdiction of mainland China. And, with actions taken by the Trump administration, this value looks like it will increase. Specifically, the actions to delist some Chinese firms from USA bourses are likely to drive many Chinese companies listed on the Nasdaq, New York Stock Exchange, or other exchanges to relist in Hong Kong. Even if these policies are reversed by President Biden, Chinese firms may still take the opportunity to delist from the US and relist in Asia. This view is supported by a former chairman of China's Banking Regulatory Commission, now the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, who, in a South China Morning Post article dated 11 July 2020, stated, when referring to Hong Kong's placing as the world's top center for IPO listings, quote, if more Chinese companies returned from the US, Hong Kong could grab another number one title next year, end quote. In some ways, this would represent a return to form for Hong Kong, for, as the South China Morning Post notes in an article dated 27 September 2020, the Hang Seng has been a destination for mainland IPOs since the late 1990s. Even now, outside of some global companies such as Prada, Budweiser and Samsonite, over half the companies listed on the exchange are mainland companies, and account for nearly 80% of market capitalization. To further highlight this point, of the over 50 billion US dollars raised in IPOs in 2020, 98% of this was from mainland firms listing in Hong Kong, up from 74% in 2019, according to Deloitte. The market for Chinese companies looking to pursue a dual listing is also a source of potential, as investors look to trade on the A-share, H-share arbitrage, whereby they can buy A shares listed in Shanghai or H shares listed in Hong Kong of a Chinese company, depending on which is cheapest or which stock market is performing best. With numerous channels for investors directly buying shares in Chinese exchanges, whether through asset and wealth managers in possession of QFI or RQFI quota, or directly via a Stock Connect program, the opportunities for maximizing the A share H share arbitrage are potentially the greatest they have ever been. Further demonstrating the increasing role of Chinese investors in Hong Kong stock markets, in January 2020, mainland Chinese investors' holdings of Hong Kong-listed stocks, bought via the two Stock Connect programs connecting Shanghai and Shenzhen to Hong Kong, reached an all-time high of 235.7 billion US dollars, according to the Financial Times, citing Bloomberg data, with one day reaching a daily record of 2.5 billion US dollars. Had the Ant Financial IPO occurred, these numbers would likely have been higher. Outside of IPOs and share trading, Hong Kong has plenty to offer in the fixed income space. Since the first dim sum bond, one which is issued in Hong Kong but denominated in RMB, was issued back in 2007, China's domestic bond market has grown to become the second largest in the world behind the USA. This growth, coupled with a push to internationalize the RMB, a still maturing process for handling bond defaults within China, and an increased presence of foreign firms operating in China, could see Hong Kong provide a space for RMB-denominated bonds to be issued under the auspices of international law, reporting, and disclosure standards. Over in wealth management, the recently announced Wealth Management Connect program within the Greater Bay Area, whilst still in its infancy and nascent development stages, could provide an avenue for wealth managers and private banks in Hong Kong to access China's 3.5 trillion US dollar wealth management market. Whilst only a portion of this would reside within the GBA, KPMG estimated in a 2018 report that the GBA is home to 480,000 individuals with financial assets in excess of 1 million USD, so the existing market is not insignificant. As things currently stand, the scheme will operate under a quota system, similar to other cross-border programs. In October 2020, authorities stated that an aggregate quota of 45 billion US dollars in fund movements would start the scheme off, and that individual investors would be limited to circa 150,000 US dollars of investments. Whilst the current proposal only allows for vanilla or simple investment products with medium to low risk profiles to be sold, an incremental approach is expected to be undertaken by authorities, 
which would gradually raise the aggregate quota, individual investment limits, and range of products available under the program. Whilst an inward turn towards China may turn out to be the main strategy for Hong Kong in ensuring its survival, it is putting efforts into a range of other initiatives, including Islamic finance, green finance, fintech, and digital banking. Green finance, fintech, and digital banking in particular seem to be making decent progress, whereas despite the issuance of a $1 billion US dollar Islamic bond, or Sukuk, in 2014, and two further Sukuks in 2015 and 2017, the development of Islamic finance in Hong Kong appears to have petered out in recent years. In green finance, Hong Kong's SFC published its Strategic Framework for Green Finance in September 2018, and in May 2020, SFC, along with several other regulators and authorities, established the Green and Sustainable Cross-Agency Steering Group to accelerate the growth of green and sustainable finance in Hong Kong. For virtual banking, Hong Kong approved eight virtual banking licenses in 2019, with seven beginning operations in 2020. Operating with a mandate of spurring innovation and competition within the financial services sector, some have amassed tens if not hundreds of thousands of customers, and, having ensured their basic service delivery is sound, some are now looking at expanding into wealth management services. Their introduction, along with that of the myriad fintech firms established or operating in Hong Kong, serve to ensure a steady stream of new products and services are introduced to the territory, sparing innovation and reducing friction across the financial services sector. So, there we have it. Whilst Hong Kong is under increasing pressure and competition from rival financial centres, it remains in the fight and is taking steps to ensure it holds as much of its future potential in its own hands rather than rely on outside forces to carry it to safety. The demise of Hong Kong has been predicted almost since its founding, and each time the territory has bounced back. Whilst the threat to it this time is different, so too is Hong Kong's role in the financial world. The following quote from Richard Harris, taken from his South China Morning Post article published on 18 September 2020, may provide the best insight into Hong Kong's future. He states, Hong Kong will remain a great financial centre. Only the colour of the money will be different. Thank you all very much for listening. We hope you join us next time.